This is the Aurelius Podcast, episode 46 with Nick Fink. I'm Zach Naylor, co-founder at Aurelius and your host for the Aurelius Podcast, where we discuss all things UX, research, and product. In this episode, we have Nick Fink, a UX professional who, as he puts it, has done a little bit of everything. Nick has been around for a long time and has a ton of really impressive experience and thoughts to share. He's particularly passionate about mentoring and coaching other UX professionals and teams. Nick and I talked about a range of things like the difference between leadership and management in UX, growing your career, how to interview well and land a job, and so much more. It was a very good conversation, and Nick shared a lot of his insights from his experience over the years. The Aurelius podcast is brought to you by Aurelius, the powerful research repository and insights platform. Aurelius is an all-in-one space for researchers to organize notes, capture insights, analyze data, and share outcomes with your team. We recently announced two of our biggest features yet. Aurelius now offers transcriptions and the automatic report builder. You can add any audio or video recording and have notes created for you automatically. Then, Aurelius automatically creates a report with every key insight and recommendation from your project, which you can then edit, design, and share with anyone right from Aurelius. Check us out at AureliusLab.com. That's A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. Okay, let's get to it. Hey, Nick. Hey, how's it going? I'm pretty good. It's uh, one of the holiday weeks when we're recording this. So for folks listening after the fact, I think most of us are kind of taking it easy, but Nick and I are going to have a chat today. Yeah, it's been a great holiday, a little bit of a weird one, but a great one. Yeah, it definitely did feel a little bit different. I think, at least for me, for reasons that I didn't expect. So not the obvious stuff, like you couldn't get together, but just different in other ways. Yeah, we just hit that two-year mark with our son. And so we're going through that, like, one, like, the whole Santa Claus thing, and it's kind of like now more understood. And then two, the whole family tradition, because, you know, we're a fairly new family. So we were realizing like last year, we felt like we didn't have any tradition. And this year, we feel like we do. So that was it was kind of great to just kind of realize like, oh my gosh, we have created traditions. These are what we do now. And I think the whole circumstance of the, of the pandemic and all that has kind of like shed more light on the fact that we actually have traditions with the larger family too. Yeah, no, that's cool. Yeah, and I agree. I, I experienced a similar thing. But in any event, I appreciate you taking the time during our downtime to have a chat and be a guest on our show and typically kick things off, you know, with just asking for anybody uh, listening who may not know who you are, maybe, you know, introduce yourself, give a little bit of background, the work that you do, things that you're passionate about. So I would describe myself as a UX professional. I know that's kind of like a vague statement, but I've kind of done a little bit of everything in my career. I've been going at this for about 24 years, long since before we called it UX, before information architecture was even thing. Really just starting out, you know, doing web design, web development before CSS even existed, if you can imagine that. <laughs> um, so I'm kind of an old timer in that regard. I've been managing teams for about 14 years. So I've been kind of in leadership roles managing managers and large organizations for um, bigger companies as well as agencies. Yeah, I've been doing it for a long time. One of the things I've always done is mentoring. So mentoring has been kind of near and dear to my heart. And I've been recently taking the big leap into jumping into mentoring full-time and providing sort of coaching slash mentoring services. Been kind of fun to do. Kind of get to know people and just see them succeed in the career transition. A lot of people transitioning into the field, of course. But yeah, I worked at a number of companies. Probably the largest organization was Organization of 33 at AWS, Amazon Web Services. 
And then I also uh, headed up a design team for platform at Facebook. I've been a teacher at a bootcamp called General Assembly. Also run my own business, Blue Flavor, for many years and work at different agencies like Project 202, Blink UX, a whole handful of other things that I'm sure you could probably just like look online and find out about. But, you know, I think one of the things that I've always kind of focused on is just that sort of the people aspects of what we do as designers, how we operate as designers, how we hire designers, how do we train designers, how do we grow designers once they're on our teams, that sort of stuff. That's been kind of like hyper-focus lately. Yeah, that's super cool. You know, one of the things that I always really appreciate is for folks who've been in the industry a long time, I think we all tend to start out wanting to at least do or try all the things that UX might encompass. We tend to get, you know, at least a little bit better at certain aspects of it, or we, or we tend to have a natural inclination towards those. But one of the things that's really interesting to me is to see for folks who've been in the industry for like a long while, the thing for them. So for you, you've mentioned it. It's sort of the people and the growing aspect of it. And so for other people, it's operations. For other people, it's still maybe being a practitioner and that's what they love to do. And then for others, you know, it's just, it's like parts of the business and stuff like that and how it relates. It's just always really fascinating to me with somebody who has such a broad and depth of experience to see, you know, what's the thing that really fuels them because doing the work is no longer that big of a challenge for you. You know how to do that. You've done that successfully for a long time. And so here's the thing that you're really passionate about, right? I'm kind of curious, you know, what led you there, right? Like, where did you start to realize people and making designers, helping people get in and be successful as UX and research folks? How did that latch on for you? I mean, it's always something I've done as kind of like on the side, not part of my job, not you know, dedicated work hours for it or anything like that or expectations in a role. You know, it's just kind of something that I've always done. I, I ran digital web for about 10 years, which is online publication to help people learn about basically web design, web development. And then we started as UX and IA started becoming things, we started covering those topics. So I saw a lot of folks that are trying to learn this stuff through these articles and online resources and stuff. You know, when I started out there, there really wasn't that stuff right? There wasn't publications, even things like as early back as a list apart was, it, it wasn't a thing until later in my career, right? And it was maybe O'Reilly books, but they were all technical. I remember the O'Reilly pocket guide where it was everything you need to know about HTML on a, like a little brochure, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. which is pretty amazing. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff that like the learning part of it. And then as I went through my career, I kind of realized that like, I've kind of done a little bit of everything. I've worked, you know, in-house at tech companies that were big. I've worked at agencies. I've freelanced. I ran my own business. I've done volunteer projects. I've, you know, started a nonprofit for a while, you know, like all these kinds of things. And and people really appreciated the advice, you know, to be able to give like my experiences and share my experiences with them and they could take away something from that. And then in the one-on-one mentoring situations, it's like I find a lot of that, you know, knowledge that I have can be applied into that sort of space for sort of more coaching purposes. So, you know, I kind of found that like people were my thing once, you know, I had built teams at Ubermind, which became Deloitte Digital, and then AWS, and then Facebook. And kind of after that, I was like, well, what if I could kind of make this thing that's sort of on the side that I do in my evening hours for free pizza or whatever, um, and then to kind of make it more of my uh, sort of central to my work. And, you know, at that time, the way I thought about it was, well, what if I did teaching? And that's what got me into teaching the bootcamp, which, you know, 
was it was a learning experience. It was kind of interesting, kind of working under a different curriculum created by a different organization. A lot of that I refined and kind of built up to to kind of be more well rounded for sort of what I would call like the modern designer, the modern researcher. And we did have grads from those programs that did go on to design and research specifically, whether it was product design or UX design. That kind of education thing was pretty helpful. And then prior to that, I had worked with Web Standards Curriculum Project where we developed an open source curriculum for information architecture. So all this kind of stuff kind of just sort of like, you know, came in at kind of an apex point where all that sort of came together, teaching helping people, my background in in some level of education. But again, I was also self-taught, right? Having kind of been through all that and being able to share that and then realizing like a lot of people like wanted my time. And the biggest challenge I had was, well, my time was dedicated to my job, most of it. And then, you know, now with a family and all that, you know, my after hours are kind of limited. Basically, mentoring was always that thing that was like sort of first to go to the back burner almost. I mean, not Mm -hmm. first, but like, deprioritize compared to like making a paycheck and all this kind of stuff. Sure. And, you know, so that's kind of what led me to like formalizing that, you know, now if mentoring becomes this thing, that's sideline, because, you know, I have to pay rent and whatever, or pay my mortgage or whatever, you know, then how do I make it, you know, something that can kind of support me, but I can also continue to support other folks rather yeah. than kind of like focusing back on my job and kind of giving it only partial attention. I'm kind of one of those people, I guess, that I believe there's sort of like one thing that you can focus on at a time, really. You know, this goes into even like the management left issue of like player coach being a coach as a manager and helping the team or a manager that is a player that has to design stuff. Mm-hmm. And you end up being like kind of good at one or the other. It's really hard to be really great at both. And so I kind of felt like the balance between me and mentoring and me and being a design manager was kind of at odds with each other in some ways even though that should be part of the role, right? It yeah. should be baked in, right? That's that's such an interesting point, that last thing you said, because even before this, we were sort of chatting offline and you mentioned Fred, who we had on the show several yeah. episodes back. And, you know, he's in a design ops role and the way he described it, you know, I asked him, how would you give a definition to it? Because it's, it's still pretty new, right? And he actually said design ops is design leadership without all the bullshit <laughs> is what is how he described it. Because it's basically what you just said, right? Like he got a chance to focus on the people in the development of the practice and making sure that happened really smooth. And that's the thing that he's passionate about. And yeah. it kind of sounds like that's what happened to you, but especially even more like mentorship of the people, which, you know, it yeah. can be very, very rewarding for sure. And just to say, I can relate that, you know, I didn't go to school for this stuff. Like we, right, we, we read books from other people who did this and we thought, hey, these people were pretty smart. We think they know what they're doing. <laughs> Let's all share this stuff. And it can be very rewarding too, just to get yeah. that. I was going to ask you though, like with the mentorship stuff, I mean, you see a lot of this now, especially that you're focusing on it full-time or nearly full-time. What are the things that you feel like everybody should just know getting into UX, getting into UX research before they even ask you the question? Because I'm sure you hear, you know, some of these all the time. Yeah, I think one of the things that I, I kind of see is UX, and this is not unique to UX, is just if you're going to get into a field, you need to be passionate about it. You need to be dedicated to it. You need to have drive for it. You've got to have that personal inertia that no matter how many times you get kicked down, they're going to stand back up and get on your feet and keep going, right? And I see so many folks that get into UX because they think, oh, you know, tech pays a lot, so I need to get in tech. And then they look at all the roles in tech and they're like, maybe I could do this UX stuff. This seems pretty straightforward. I just push a bunch of pixels around on a screen or something, right? And, you know, and they get into it for all the wrong reasons, right? And they don't give it their all. They try. And then when they 
run into a wall, the first wall. They either find a way around it, over it, under it, find support to get around it, or they just go back to what they were doing, right? I think there's this perception, and I, I will fault our one, our own industry for it, as well as efforts that have framed it in such a way, I don't know if it's like marketing or product people or business owners, that it's this like get rich quick scheme, you know, like, yeah. oh, just, you know, go to school for a week and then like, you'll know everything you need to know and then make a whole crap load of money. And that's all there is to life. Well, <laughs> one, like I've been at this for enough years to know that money's not everything. Mm-hmm. Two, it's hard work. The market is so oversaturated with junior level talent right now. It's in fact, it's a huge problem. There is a gap with hiring for junior talent or like, you know, every like 10 roles or something like that, you might see a mid-level role. There's like almost never a junior role posted, Yeah. you know, and when it says junior, you read it in the fine print, it says, oh, five years of experience, which to me personally is a mid-level, not a, not a junior level, but you know, whatever. And there's this, these barriers, these challenges, and it makes it really hard for anybody in this pool of people coming out of universities, boot camps, self-taught, you know, whatever, borrowing from other design kind of like experience and applying that into the field of UX, they're, they're struggling, right? You know, and they look at it as there must be something wrong with me. And the reality is there's something wrong with our field, mm-hmm. right? And that gap we have in our field is this notion that, oh, well, if I bring a, a senior designer they'll be a better performer. I won't have to teach them anything. They'll just kind of like hit the ground running, you know? And that's like a very big myth, right? For example, at AWS, highly technical space, you're hiring designers, mostly designers who understood what AWS was and wanted to be in AWS. When we brought them in, they had a one-year ramp. Mm -hmm. That's a senior level designer. It took them a year to get confident in these products and the teams they were assigned to, be able to, in a meeting with the GM, say, hey, maybe there's a better way to approach this on some particular thing. Until then, it was kind of like, oh, I better not speak up because I don't know this space enough. Kind of getting their bearings, right? Mm -hmm. It takes a lot to ramp up. And even the most senior skilled talent isn't going to ramp necessarily fast. The other thing is senior talent needs assistance in some ways in that they might need reassurance depending on where they're at in their career. They might need just interesting projects. There might be a lot of team dynamics to deal with and all these other kind of baggage that comes with just people, right? Mm-hmm. Junior designers are no different. The only thing that's different about junior designers is they want to learn. They know they don't know everything. They want, they're eager to impress and they need a little bit of guidance. Yeah. And what we instead run into is this inability to hire junior talent. So the senior talent we find in some of these companies are overextended. And when you look at why they're overextended, it's because they are literally doing these like really basic things that totally a junior designer could do and that could absolutely be delegated to a junior designer and then free up their time to focus on these big picture, bigger problems kind of stuff. Yeah. But instead they're in the trenches doing like, you know, a thousand wireframe variations of a screen for all the different states or whatever, or a prototype or whatever they're doing. And meanwhile, the teams are just chugging along and just moving forward almost without them, right? So we have this kind of experience gap where we're unwilling to hire and invest the time and effort into mentoring and coaching junior designers. But meanwhile, we're, we're okay with turning our senior designers into these workhorses that are just cranking out work and 
you know, maybe it's because they ask less questions when they're really busy like that. But unfortunately, we need a lot of questions to be asked. We're at a state in technology where there's a lot of stuff that's shipping that like runs into ethical issues, runs into racial issues, run in, runs into all these kinds of things that discriminate, isolate, or don't reach the market they should, you know, like uh, people with impairments and things like that, that isn't even being considered because the designers just happen to crank out work to catch up yeah. the that are basically incentivized to ship fast. So yeah. that's a huge thing. That's like the big problem. This is, I'm paraphrasing my, my keynote talk here pretty much, is that experience gap in terms of education, knowledge, and levels of experience. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Just to kind of distill some things that I took away from that too, and even maybe add some of my own lived experience is a lot of times you lose senior designers because they're not fulfilled and they're not being challenged. And what you just described is one of the you know, huge reasons why is because they're doing things that to them feels like commoditized. Now, somebody needs to do that work. But like as you said, junior designers can actually be a great fit for that. And it helps get their feet wet and, and really the experience that they need. You know, and the other thing that I took away from that reminds me something I always tell people, which is I can teach anybody how to design or do research. It's teaching someone the right thing to design, or in your case, maybe the right questions to ask and the right things to be thinking about. That only really comes with experience. You can teach that, but that costs you a lot more money and it takes you a lot more time. So you're almost better off allowing those people, right? So then you can solve this problem with uh, senior practitioners to free up the time and space to A, not only do the work that be fulfilling to them, but then B, cover this ground that you're not covering because there's too many swinging hammers at nails all the time. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people I talk to and ask them, you know, when I ask them, hire managers and people of that sort of like caliber, like when I ask them like, hey, well, how come you haven't hired any junior designers? You know, one, it's like organizational. They haven't been granted headcount to do it. You know, they don't have good like ramps into junior levels, like for example, internship programs, or basically they themselves don't have the, the bandwidth to support a junior designer. And, you know, one of the first things that I kind of unravel for them is this notion that the manager needs to be the sole person to help aid and guide a junior designer. And when you look at like you could, it's kind of interesting because you could go inside of some of these big tech companies and they have these things like they basically, whether you call them career matrices or career leveling guides or whatever, career paths, tracks, et cetera, basically describes the different levels of designers, you know, junior, mid, senior, et cetera. And when you look at the senior level designers, there's almost always something in there about growing others, like helping other designers get better at their craft. And if I look at the reviews that I've seen of other managers saying, oh, why this person that's senior needs a promotion to principal or whatever, you know, and I look at that, that particular bullet point, it's almost always kind of like just a wash. They're like, oh, yeah, this person kind of like helped on this one little thing. And it's like, no, no, no. Did they take a junior designer under their wing? Did they help grow that person and solidify them in their role or help them, you know, build their skills and elevate to the next role? you know, mm -hmm. whatever it might be. And that should be baked into our job expectations, especially at the senior level. You know, mid, you can argue whether like they're, they have enough experience to be able to like mentor and that sort of stuff and guide. But, you know, the other thing is, is a lot of people have this notion of like what a junior designer is like, you know, how much knowledge they have, how much ability they have. Let me tell you, I had a team of 24 directs I know that's insane. Never have that many directs, by the way. I had a team of 24 directs. We were looking at building an internship program. We ended up hiring this one intern. And this intern, it was it was so amazing. One, you know, like I, all the things I talked about, eager, always wanting to impress, you know, all these kinds of things. And some of those can be faults, you know, like you can 
over-index on things like that, right? <laughs> but the, the thing was, is this junior designer actually started running circles around my senior level designers. They started outperforming my senior designers. They started taking on more scope and responsibility than even my senior designers had. Now I look back right now, they had a career beyond that, that company, of course, and did some great things. And now they are managing an entire design team inside another organization. Yeah. It hasn't been that many years. You know, so this expectation of, oh, a junior designer is just somebody who doesn't know how to do anything and we have to teach them everything. You know, it's like, it's totally a myth. Like, yes, you have to find the right candidates for the job, but like, yeah. it's not as much hard work if you get the right people in that are not just looking for a paycheck, but actually want to grow. Totally. You know? Totally. Well, so what you just said there is like the perfect encapsulation of, of everything that led up to it. And you mentioned that earlier where, you know, this isn't really a career that's great to walk into and make a bunch of money for a few years and then go do something else with your life. Right. I mean, the, I think the people who are most successful in UX or research or product strategy or any of that stuff, they're people who just really give a damn. And that's yeah. not something you can put on a resume. And that kind of goes back to where I was mentioning, like, I can teach you the mechanics. I can teach you the tools to do design and research. That doesn't matter all that much if you don't care about the output of that, right? I completely agree. It's a really interesting thing and also very hard. But if you can find the person who, look, you've got the skills enough, right? We can help you with that. That's easy. But if you can find the person who really, really cares about what they do, and this is like the perfect situation, also cares about the subject matter of your yeah. organization, that person will, they'll take off. All they need is the yeah. opportunity. Yeah. If people from all walks of life come into UX and become very, very successful in spite of formal training, right? all of us did. Yeah. We didn't go to school for this stuff when we, when we first started. Yeah. I mean, you know, you talked about like, you know, people who care about the, the area, the team, what the team is doing, the product, that space. I mean, I look back at AWS. If they didn't understand what AWS was, we wouldn't hire them. We we might hire them for some you know other role inside of Amazon because when when you interview, you actually interview for Amazon. Not you're interviewing the candidate for a role at Amazon, not for necessarily a role on your team. What we found the best success was you know when people came in, they knew what AWS was. Maybe they didn't necessarily use it because they weren't necessarily the target audience, but you know they had enough familiarity. They they knew how to talk to it at least, and they positioned what you know, case studies they presented, you know, based on that, right? Versus the candidate comes in that clearly is taking the shotgun approach to job hunting, right? They're like applying a thousand job postings every day just to see if there's going to be a bite. And they, they're looking at it from a statistical standpoint, right? Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, somebody's going to bite. It's like, yeah, somebody's going to bite and you're going to waste a lot of their time because you're not going to know why you're interviewing there. You're not going to know anything about the company. And meanwhile, the company is going to see right through that, right? Yeah. And we've, we've had a lot of people that interviewed, they might knew something about Amazon. Oh, why, why do you want to, you know, work here at AWS? Oh, you know, I really love the, the, the Kindle Fire. I love like the e-commerce experience. And it's like, okay, this division has nothing to do with any of that, or at right. least very little to do with any of that. You know, it was very clear and very obvious to us when those candidates kind of came in that way. And that's the, the one thing I think a lot of people that are job hunting right now, if you're listening right now and you're like, God damn it, I am struggling to get a job in this field. Why is this so hard? One, it's not you because the field is oversaturated of junior level talent. Two, it's because you're probably taking a broad approach when you need to think about what are the three companies I feel I could work for? Not like their dream company because maybe you're not ready yet, right? You're just getting into the field. You know, you're not going to necessarily be at that like epic point in your career where you're going to walk right in the door to some epic position. But for a junior level position, what are the kind of companies you want to work for? And then like find like five or so companies that like are... Yeah, I totally want to be there. I'm passionate about that, what they're doing there, and then learn about them even more than you already do 
and then apply. Mm-hmm. You know, but you also have to have your kind of foot in the door. You already have to know people in there. And that gets back to the making network, you know, networking and making connections, building your, you know, sort of rapport with people on the inside so that maybe you could get a referral, you know, versus just like walking in the door as a blind applicant, right? Yeah. That pretty much almost guarantees you you won't get a callback, right? Yeah. You know, versus like, you know, a few people in there, they referred you in. They haven't worked with you maybe, but they know about you. They have maybe had a few virtual coffees with you. They get your mindset. They understand you know about design and you're passionate about it. And you know why this company is the company for you. Then that's where the referral comes in, right? Totally. I very, very strongly co-sign that advice, particularly about being passionate about the company and learning about that because it just sets you so far apart from anybody else who might be applying for that. But, But more importantly, it sets yourself up for success, not just in getting the job, but like, doing something fulfilling, right? I give the same kind of advice to folks. It doesn't matter of all stripes, right? Junior or not. When they say, you know, I'm just trying to figure out what I want to do next or what I should do or how to get a job. I always say, what do you want to do? Don't tell me UX. Like, what do you care about as a person? Because because what we do in UX can be applied to all these different kinds of industries. Some are like technology already have a bunch of us doing it. Some not. And then what I tell people is it's your job to then help them see how what you do can help further their mission, whatever that might be. You know, it might be very business-like in nature. It might be very, you know, organic and sort of social and civic in nature. And it kind of doesn't matter, but like figure out what you really care about and then show people how, you know, your thing can help them do better. And, And then also in that, right? So it's like two parts, right? Learn a lot or at least get very clear on what you care about. But then also be honest with yourself on what are you really good at in UX? Is it design? Is it research? Is it strategy? Is it communication and mentoring? Right. And then find, find that too, because like you said, the shotgun approach, it doesn't actually do anybody any good, most especially you as the candidate, because you might get in a job revising wireframes all day and maybe you hate (laughs) that, right? Like maybe you don't actually like doing design. Yeah. And, you know, and that kind of goes into another point is just like when you don't get the job, that's a hit to the soul, right? Like you just like you get that rejection letter. It's very automated, very boilerplate. Usually at first glance, it might seem like it's just totally boilerplate. There might actually be pieces of feedback in there. Like we went with a more experienced candidate. Sounds very boilerplate, but maybe that's what actually happened. The other thing is, is, you know, having, I talked about that team that I managed at AWS. So that was a team of 33. Um, I grew it from six to 33 in about three months. That was a ton of interviewing and hiring. What I learned from that experience was sometimes the people that are like, like the best UX designers may not get the job on your team. And, and it's not because like there's some sort of deficiency with them. It's sometimes there's a deficiency with the job to basically yep. fulfill what they're trying to accomplish in their careers. Mm-hmm. You know, so like I've seen these talented designers. Oh man, I designed, you know, whatever. You know, I used to say Burton, but I guess that's not the case anymore. But like, you know, all these different like kind of consumer high-end, you know, websites and stuff. And then they would apply to like AWS and they might even know something about AWS. And it might be a great designer, but like, it's like, man, you are going to hate this job. You are going to hate being here because it's nothing like any of that stuff. And what you said you're like passionate about you're not really going to touch much here, mm-hmm. you know, you know, yeah, I could hire you. Yeah. You could do the job and that would be great. And, but how many months, it's almost like a timer is yeah. ticking down before you either transfer to another team because you could do that after about a year at AWS uh, or at anywhere in Amazon. I think if their policy is still the same today, but um, they could transfer or they could just leave, you know, mm-hmm. and, and find something more suitable for what they want to do. Right. 
So I don't want to be just a stepping stone for somebody. I mean, I don't want to be a stepping stone if it elevates them, but if it just moves them laterally to just a different company, like that's not the right job for you, you know? And, you know, it's okay to be like somebody who's like, I know I don't want to be a senior designer and I want to just be mid for, you know, the rest of my career. Cool. Tell me about that. How can I help support that, right? There's also something to be said about, you know, a lot of folks tend to want to like level up and a lot of folks will like level up sort of like it's the Peter principle, right? They level up to like the point of incompetence, right? Mm. So they want to be a senior because they know it pays more. They finally get the senior role and then the reviews keep coming back saying you're not performing, you're not doing what we're expecting, which is the worst way to hear about this kind of feedback. You know, ideally a manager has worked with you and you know your deficiencies and you know where you're not cutting it. And they've been trying to work with you and helping provide resources so that you could grow in those gaps, right? Not just saying, hey, here's your deficiencies, go figure it out, but actually like aiding them with that, right? And that's that's another thing about like design management, just it's just falls so short. Like, I mean, I've unfortunately had the experience where there's been a lot of that. It's like, hey, you know, here's the thing, work on that, go figure it out. You know, it's like, okay, great. This is my, goes into like my ethos of, I don't necessarily believe non-design managers should be managing design orgs. You know, so that notion of, oh, I worked in, you know, some other division of other thing, and now I'm going to just manage people. How hard could it be? And I've seen, (laughs) I've seen VPs just tumble down on this kind of stuff, right? Like they move into a VP of design role. And then when a design question comes up with the CEO and all the C-level executives in the room, and you're sitting in a room and that VP of design's in there and they look like it could be somebody else to answer. Mm -hmm. Like, no, you're the head of design. It's your job to answer this. You should know enough about this stuff, you know? Absolutely. I think we over-index on it. I think there's this notion of, you know, design managers need to have portfolios, which is like, okay, well, I've been doing design management for 14 years. So you're looking for work that's 14 years old. And then there's sometimes like feedback, like, well, we want, you know, to hear your case studies or your project succeeds and, you know, things that have like launched and stuff. Like, so you want me to describe work other people did on my team and how I supported that. Yeah, great. Like, okay, I can have a conversation with you about that. But, you know, trying to say, here's my wireframes for 14 years ago doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Yeah, Um, completely. Completely. You know, and one of the things there too, this is true for candidates on individual contributor roles, you know, people executing design research as well as managers. You know, the thing you did doesn't matter as much, in my opinion, as someone who has also done a ton of hiring in my past, it doesn't matter as much as how you did it. Right. Like the story of how that went is way more important than was it successful or not, because there's a lot of factors. It doesn't matter if you were doing the design, you were doing the research, you were making all the decisions, which A, is never true. Uh, But then B is like unlikely for you to be able to influence because there's so many other factors that influence success. Okay, so the like the ultimate outcome, and I hear a lot of people talk about this. Don't show me, you know, like the polished final thing. Like, tell me what what metrics you moved or what. And it, like that stuff doesn't matter to me as much as to how did you go about this. And so you talked about yeah. this and share your thought process. What's your attitude? What's your perspective on this? That matters way more because that's going to show whether or not you're successful on this team as a manager or as a contributor. Yeah, and you know, it's it's funny because like it. I tell all my former students this. When I look at case studies online, like they have a portfolio online and there's all these great case studies. First, like there's this, oh, nobody reads. It's like, well, yeah, nobody reads the first time. Like I'm just looking through a thousand candidates. I don't have time to read your full case study. That's true. But by the time you're interviewing on site, I do have time to read your full case studies. Mm -hmm. That said, 
when it's like the first couple rounds and I'm like trying to see if this person should be, you know, paired up of a designer to do a one-on-one interview or something over the phone, like I'm going to look through your case studies. And the way I look through it is I look for that section that says what I learned, Mm -hmm. some kind of learning section, you know, and it, it doesn't have to really be a section, but like, I'm looking for like, I did this project and here's what I, how I grew by doing this project. If there's something, some kind of nugget in there, whether it's at the end, at the top or wherever, buried in between, you know, weaved in. As long as that's in there, like I feel like, okay, this person knows they don't know it all. They know they learned something from this project. They can articulate what it was that they learned from it. Maybe they would do things differently now that they know this, or maybe they would at least ask some different questions at the start or whatever it is, right? Because, you know, what scares me more than that is the case study where it's like everything went perfect and no learning was involved because they just knew how to do all this stuff and everything went off without a hitch. It's like, okay, this doesn't sound real. This sounds like somebody put up a facade behind what really, you know, there's always, there's team team dynamics, business disagreements, pivots, um, reorgs that happen in the middle of projects, all this crazy stuff that we're sort of afraid to show because it doesn't look like a perfect case study, you know? Yeah, we want to to pretend that everything went really well because that'll make it seem like we can replicate that. And that's not true. It never happens. And that actually, you know, it reminds me of something that you said. If you get a rejection letter, sometimes it's not you. Sometimes it's that place or the role or the situation. And sometimes, if especially if it's a good manager, a good hiring manager, they say, this person isn't right for this because they're not going to get what they want out of it. Yeah. Because, I, you know, one of the things that I tell people new to our field is when you start interviewing, remember, that company needs you just as much as you need them. And it's got to be a mutual thing. And so the more we can cut out all of this facade that you say and just get to truths. Hey, here's our warts. <laughs> Show me your warts. <laughs> Let's figure out if this if this works well together. Because if you can jive with the team and the culture and the, and the way we approach stuff, that's indicative that you can help us all move forward. And we know it ain't going to be perfect, but we know that you'll work with us well in this dynamic, as you called it, right? But if we if we both putting up these what's the old term, Potemkin village. It's like these, uh, these things that look really great, but there's like no substance behind it. We're, right. we're, we're lying. We're quite literally lying to each other and neither of us are going to get what we need to be successful. Yeah. It's uh, and it's tough to say because, you know, so many people are in situations where they don't have the benefit of a network or somebody on the inside to get in and we've been trying for years and they finally got like that interview and they don't want to mess it up and all this. And they can't help but think like, well, gosh, if I'm truly honest about what happened and, how messed up this thing was, it's going to make me look bad compared to the other candidate who's not willing to be honest about it, you know? And the funny thing is, is like as a hiring manager, it's like if you've done enough interviews and you can kind of read through it, you can kind of say, okay, this person's either not telling me the full story or they were the problem, you know? Like, you yeah, know, they don't know. They don't know what the problem was because they were the one. <laughs> yeah, totally. right. Yeah. And, and that's, that is, you know, God, that's such a great point because like, some of these students that would come to me saying, I didn't get this job and they didn't give me any feedback. And I'd be like, really? And they're like, how do you know you didn't get it then? And it's like, oh, well, I got this letter. And I'm like, okay, can you show me the letter? And I'll read through it. And I'm like, oh, it says right here. You know, like I can literally like pair out the like, here's what they're saying you need to grow in, you know? And, mm-hmm. you know, I could sit there and tell that to people until they're blue in the face or I'm blue in the face, whether they take action or not, whether they really embrace that and say, okay, this is a deficiency. How do I get better at it? You know, that's a personal thing. That's something you have to just kind of, you have to like, you know, suck it up and say, you know what? Nobody's perfect. I mean, look, I'm, I've been at this 24 years in the field. I'm still learning. I'm not perfect. 
I screw up things all the time. And I tell people like, we're just having a conversation another day with one of my buddies that I screwed something up years ago and it just, we had disconnected for a while and then I reconnected with them and I'm like, Hey man, sorry about that screw up. I should have done this. I wasn't thinking about this. I would, you know, and he's like, Hey man, like I was still learning. And then I, we basically was kind of like, yeah, you were learning to be an IC. I was learning to be a manager and we kind of both grew through from that, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But sometimes like we have to make those mistakes to learn from them. And, you know, that's why I'm a big fan of sharing that mistake and what people learn from it. Because it's not so much that like, oh, I did this thing in this project, you know, here's my case study. I did this thing in this project and I totally screwed up everything or I totally screwed up this one part. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, yeah, if you just leave it like that, it's, Probably not going to go over well in an interview. But if you said, here's the actions I took to try to, one, surface the screw up, two, try to remedy the issue or get support to remedy the issue. It doesn't have to be you to save the world. It could be you relying on somebody, being smart enough to know that somebody else can help solve the problem better that of the thing that you messed up, you know? And yeah, it doesn't look great that you messed up, but you know what? It's, did you grow from it? Did you learn from it? Did you, you know, what were the actions you took from it? You know, like that kind of stuff. That matters so much more. Talking about the case study, as you were mentioning before, is like, you know, what was your thinking and mentality behind all this as you went through it? I do think metrics are important, but I do think, you know, it's not just like, hey, here's my process. I did research. I did personas. I did wireframes. You know, it's like, that's what the robot did. Okay. Like, tell me about what the person did. Right. Tell me about like the feelings you had through this project and like why you like what was the rationale of like why you decided to do like five different flows instead of one massive flow. You know, what was the rationale behind why you did this screen this way? You know, even on that like tactical level, there's some thinking behind it, you know, right? And we want to surface that versus just like, here's my wireframes, here's my final design, you know, and like, yeah, okay, this doesn't tell me anything about that experience. Yeah, that's very, very true. I mean, the person that you are the things that you care about and how will you do this work are really what's going to make you successful or not. Because like we've talked about already, the robot (laughs) can do the thing, right? Like we can teach anybody how to do that. It's applying it from a certain perspective and uh, with a certain passion or not. I think that's really going to separate people, you know? You know, there's one thing I wanted to add a caveat to in terms of a portfolio or a resume or anything like that. It's with visual design. That is one place. That's one caveat I would add that, yeah, I want you to wow me, <laughs> right? Because like you tend, you're probably you're trying to hire somebody who who does really great visual work, but I still want the story behind it, right? Like I don't want to, I don't want to just see some really flashy and really cool and interesting and elegant stuff. Uh, I want to know how you arrived there, and I want to know how you made those decisions. I think in those cases, that does matter a little bit more. Yeah, it depends Kinda. on like what the product space is and stuff. I mean, like the last thing we wanted an AWS designer to do is wow you. Right. Like, <laughs> right. like seriously, like that people need to get their tasks done. They need to get in and get out. They're managing thousands of servers, you know, like they just need to get something accomplished, know that it got done, have confidence and trust it got done and then be able to move on. Right. So, you know, this whole like, Hey, let's play Pong while this thing loads up or whatever. It's like, that's a great wow factor for some scenarios, but in other scenarios, it's totally like flawed. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, especially if you're dealing with like high performing systems, complicated systems, that involve many subsystems like that. Because, you know, I mean, I'll be honest, like when I started AWS, they had like 72, I think it was like 72 services and like 50 of them were launched. And by the time I left, there was 150 launched services. That's a massive complicated system. So many moving parts and some of them are simple and some of them are complex. Like one of them, you had to learn machine learning. Mm -hmm. You had to understand how machine learning and statistics worked. 
use it. And they mm -hmm. wanted anybody to be able to use it, any technical person. You know, I could upload my database, but you have to actually understand like what the bell curve looks like and why there's outliers and what does that mean about your data set? You know, that is something that like isn't going to be just this, hey, let me just show you a video and then move forward from the sort of tutorial and then boom, you got it. It might take several sessions. There's a lot of things that like, wow is one thing. And I think there does need to be some level of delight in things, but like knowing when and where and to what degree to place that sort of delight is important. We tend, right now, these portfolios over-index on delight. They have, mm -hmm. you're reading, you're just trying to read the damn thing and there's stuff flying around and animating and spinning and your scrolling is impeded because something else needs to animate in based on your scroll location. Cool. I just need to read this and I have 10 seconds to do it and you just spent 20 in my seconds, you know, and I, now I need to move on to the other candidate, right? Yeah. So like, I think we over-index on wow. It's like, if I want a motion designer, yeah, do that. Absolutely do that stuff. But like, I'm not hiring a motion designer. I need an interaction designer that knows how to build things simply and straightforward, right? Yeah. So to me, like the visual designs yeah, they are one of the final artifacts, but they are not the final. Like, if you want to wow me, show me a link to the launch product if it's public. Now, not everybody has that. A lot of people work on products that never launch. Yeah. And they can't even show a case study on some of them because they have IP, right? So, like, and there's this notion, oh, it's behind a password. Oh, man, that's the quickest way. Putting IP-related material behind a password is the quickest way to get actually dismissed from a job interview. You don't have authorization to share it, and now you're sharing it in an interview. Now we're wondering, like, what else are you going to share behind closed doors? It is, like, we've had to dismiss candidates at AWS and other companies too, but, like, the thing is, is, like, having the case study is one thing, but, like, again, articulating it, right? Now, if you can't show it, how do you show visual design? You can't. It's an internal thing, IP-related thing, NDA, all this stuff. It's you did the visual design on it. You might have to just not have that case study or figure out ways to talk about it without showing anything, mm -hmm. you know, and to talk about it on such a level that like, you know, lawyers reviewed it and said, yes, this content, and they blacklined out, you know, just like like a federal government, like blacklining out, like, yeah. okay, can't say this, can't say that, you know, and then launch that case study. That might help, but that's going to be a pretty hard stretch, right? And so those kinds of folks, which there's a need for those folks. We need people that can work in highly sensitive IP internal related products. How do we find them? It's not going to be through a portfolio, right? So we have to start rethinking about like, how we think of the portfolio, what do we think of portfolio just between manager and IC, but also like internal worker versus external worker, consumer versus enterprise. What do these things look like? And I think there's this notion that like once a portfolio, always a portfolio kind of thing, like, like oh, what's the best portfolios out there and show like 15 portfolios and they're all completely different because, oh, well, portfolio one was actually an industrial designer who happens to do digital. Portfolio number two is from a motion designer who's also a product designer. Portfolio three is somebody who does development and is showing off some of their code as well. You know, like these are all different portfolios. We can't sit there and look at them like they're all cookie cutter, the same thing mm -hmm. and say, these are the best ones. You should make a portfolio like this because it varies depending on circumstance. It varies depending on your trajectory, you know, what you want to do, what the company is that you're applying for, you know, so not every portfolio will be the same. It's a flawed mechanism, right? Because we got in this notion like design, oh, it's visual. It's like, no, there's a lot of design work that is absolutely not visual. Mm -hmm. Like at AWS, we had designers working on APIs. Mm -hmm. That's command line. That's yeah. like nothing to do with interface aside from the command line notion of an interface, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and we had, well, later on, they had people that were working on oral interface, Alexa and things like that, like how you talk to it and how it responds and what are 
keywords and triggers and what, you know, mapping out the human language, you know, you know, uh, all human languages and, and like all that stuff is not on a screen. It might be in a flow, but it's, there's no, there's no visual artifact, you know? Mm. So to say like visual design is important if you're going to be doing that as part of the job. Right. And I think this notion of a UX designer having to do visual design is kind of a flawed notion. Yeah. I think we need to kind of take a step back and say, what is a visual designer, right? What is a UX designer? You could even argue, what is a product designer? And, you know, would you kind of combine those two at that point? <laughs> like, and that's fine if that's what you're hiring for and that's what your need is. But like, I think we've gotten into this world where the investment in design is so minimal compared to investment in engineering and development that you end up in this situation where it's like, well, we need to hire five people, but we're going to only have headcount for one. How do we do this? Oh, well, let's just make them do research design, you know, visual design, interaction design, information architecture, and all these things in one role. It's like, okay, talk about setting somebody up for failure because they're not necessarily going to be great at all those things. Mm-hmm. And, you're, you know, I've literally watched job postings that sit for over two years. Wow. Unfilled because they can't find somebody who's good enough at the visual design and also good enough at the research and also good in, you know, and all the things that they're asking. It's like, maybe at some point you might need to throw some headcount at it, you know, and I'm a firm believer of the like one to six, one to eight ratio for every front end developers or engineers you have for every six to eight of those, you have one designer, right? I'm saying this because, you know, when I inherited the AWS team, it was one designer for like something like 72 to 75 front end engineers. Mm-hmm front-end developers, basically developers that were, got the short straw and had to do front-end and hated doing it and subpar, you know, like whatever. But like, that was like overextended. These designers, there's only six of them on the team. They were supporting 75 products. They were well overextended, right? That doesn't set anybody up for success. That basically just says you're just going to be a factory just producing something. And if that's what you want, great. But like, you should just disclose that up front. Like, you just want designers to just produce, you know, deliverables and, and move on, right? That's not going to fill that need that like this notion that, oh, UX is important. We need to invest in UX that you hear from all these like business magazines and all this kind of stuff, right? Like that's just going to be sort of lipstick on the pig at that point, you know, and I hate to use that analogy, but that's really what it is at that point. Yeah, definitely. That sort of brings together a lot of things that we touched on. It just comes back to being honest with yourself. The company, hopefully a hiring manager being as honest as early as possible. Because in some cases, it's like, I just want to get my hands dirty and I want to I want to crank out a bunch of stuff to get that experience. And if that's what you need, then this is a perfect fit, right? But if it's not, and you're pretending that this is this you know, big strategic role where you're having much more of an impact and all of a sudden you sit down at your desk and you go, I'm doing revision 32 on this file. Right. And that's not my forte, you know? And, and, yeah. and so here's a question. Cut your teeth, right? Like that's, totally. that's absolutely it, right? And so it's like, why are we leaving those roles senior? I don't know. You know, right. like totally. it doesn't help anybody. That's actually a, an interesting transition point to me to ask you this one question that's been in the back of my mind. We talked a lot about, yeah. well, what can we do if we're in a junior or maybe a mid-level design position, things that we can be thinking about ourselves to get better, to move into these other roles. It sounds like we also have a problem though, where we're not doing enough to create good design managers, right? So what kind of advice would you give somebody if they're in that position? Maybe they've been put in that position prematurely because of the way the industry is, or maybe they've been in there for a while and they're just somebody who gives a damn and wants to get better. Management's kind of interesting thing because it is a separate track from design individual contributors, right? I think the problem has been historically that there is this notion that you become a designer, you know, junior, whatever, mid, senior, and at some point you turn into a manager, 
as part of the same track, right? Like, it's just like, oh, you're senior, the next promotion is manager, you know, like, and without this realization that, oh my gosh, management is a completely different skill set. It's like this people thing, right? It's, it's people management, it's process management, it's upward management, lateral management, you know, working with all the different VPs. I mean, God knows how many VPs and GMs are at AWS, but like I met with all of them, you know, and I'm sure my team was like, where in the hell is Nick all the time? But like, you know, at that, at that point, like, you know, there's this notion that like, yeah, senior designer needs to go into management, which is just like problematic. So then you end up with managers that were really great designers and now putting them in the role of managing a team with like no support, no training, no, no workshops, no nothing, you know, and then maybe when there's a deficiency, then they start throwing workshops at them or something at best case scenario, if it's a big company that invests in that kind of stuff. But like, for the most part, it's usually after the fact, it's usually like too late, the boat's already kind of shipped, you know, and now they're in troubled water. I think what we really need to realize is that you can be an IC designer and move up all the way as far as you can, you know, like without ever having to manage anybody. That should be completely acceptable. Mm-hmm. That means senior designers move into principal designers, senior principal designers, you know, whatever the names you want to give those labels. And I know it can split a thousand ways and people will argue semantics over all that stuff. But ultimately, there should be a way to be like essentially a distinguished designer, top of your industry, a lot of experience, and being able to coach and elevate no longer junior designers, but actually other senior designers, right? That is its own thing. And that's just still, in some ways, executing the work or at least a strategic part of the work, which I think we also have a deficiency in terms of UX and design strategy out there, right? Mm -hmm. There are people that do it, but there's not, like, it's not a very formalized role in a lot of cases. Maybe at agencies because they could bill per head, you know, whatever. But, at you know, in-house, it's kind of like another headcount. And so, no, there's not really that, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not as often as it should be anyway. Management is a separate track, right? So management involves the people skills, involves the mentoring, involves somebody who wants to help elevate others, involves people that are willing to elevate others past them. And I think there's this notion that like, also as IC, they get this idea of like, oh, a manager gets paid more. No, actually, sometimes ICs get paid more than managers. It does happen. I've seen the org charts and banding structures for pay salaries and base pay, but like, it's not necessarily the case. That said, there's also this notion of, oh, that job looks easy. This person just goes around in meetings all day. I want to do that job. I'll never have to touch a wireframe again. And they get into the role and they realize it's it's sort of the grass is greener, right? Mm -hmm. They get into the role and then they realize, oh my God, this is way harder than I thought it was. There are so many moving parts. These people don't like me. These people are my best friends, but they won't do anything for me. And then these people are actually (laughs) helping me out. You know, it's just like you're just kind of running all over the place, right? Because you have no training and you don't know what you're doing there, right? So the way I've always looked at that transition is it really should be a trial. A trial for the team to say, can this person manage a team? You know, so the design leadership and, and executive level and stuff and say, do they have the right skills to be able to manage a team? So there could be a trial of that, but there could also be a trial for the person themselves saying, do I even want to do this role? I know it looks really cool from my perspective, but once I'm in the role, is it going to look cool then? You know, what I would do is a, what I call a limited run trial, a one-year trial. So I call it a design, design lead role, which is a temporary one-year role where you basically put somebody in a position where they are now officially managing people, but in, you know, the, the org chart would still say the manager manages the people, right? But you basically say, okay, here's your, you know, two, three, one, or whatever it is, people that you're going to manage. And we're going to do this for about a year, maximum. 
And you can do the check-ins. You know, at the start, you do a lot of them. And as it goes, you do maybe a little bit less. And towards the end, there's fewer check-ins maybe. And then at the very end of the year, if you still can't decide, you know, I don't know if this person's going to be a good manager or if they can't decide, I don't know if I'm a good manager or not. It's kind of, I'll, I'll use kind of a lewd phrase my old band manager used to say. He said, basically, shit or get off the pot. Yeah. Basically, meaning if we can't decide in a year, we need to call it and say, this probably isn't a good fit for this person mm-hmm. to be a manager. Let's mm-hmm. keep them in the IC track. They move back to principal or whatever level, senior level or whatever it was they were before and continue to move forward in their career. If it's been a year and they maybe should have got a promotion, maybe we help accommodate that, you know, whatever it needs to be. Ultimately, it gives a trial run so we could see what it's really going to be like, you know, versus this like, just throw them into the deep end and see if they swim, you know, yeah. is just not effective. And you see a lot of people like leaving companies and then they go on to other companies, but they have this mindset of like, I, I should be at this level or I should be doing this kind of a role. And maybe they're not good at it. And they just haven't had a good mentor help guide them saying, here's your deficiencies. Here's how you could be better at it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So managers need to be better at that coaching and mentoring thing themselves. They also need to invest in that sort of development of their team, you know, by, by having, you know, either internally like building programs where they can train those folks to be better managers and do it like from the get-go, like not wait until some problem happens. Or, you know, there's services out there. People come in and can do that kind of coaching too. Yeah. Um, there's lots of leadership coaches and other things like that that can come into a business and help guide them. I mean, it's what I do that on the design side of things for Craft & Rigor, but like there are other people that are like, through leadership coaches that are certified at this that can provide that kind of thing, you know, because you don't just like walk in. I mean, well, you could, but you don't necessarily just walk into a chief experience officer role on day one. You know, you have to build yourself to that level. Yeah, totally. You know, just a couple things I'll summarize that I'm hearing as takeaways from what you shared there. You know, number one is being a very good designer or researcher or strategist does not equal being a very good manager. And I think, think that people generally get that, but it is worth repeating again, right? So there's that. And then, uh, you know, the second one is like work on yourself. If you do think you want to be a manager, take it upon yourself to learn about that and be and get better at it. You know, whether your company provides that or not, like there are resources free and otherwise that can help you do that, you know, and that initiative in and of itself, I think is exemplary of qualities you want in a manager. (laughs) So, so that's just kind of, I'll table that for what it's worth. The other thing that's worthwhile talking about there too is I think any good manager does still have a good understanding of the craft, whether they practice it or not. You can't really hope to effectively manage designers, a bunch of people who hopefully are as passionate or more passionate than you are about the work they do without being able to speak their language, right? So I've always sort of said like, dip your toe in that pond every once in a while, even if it's just sort of, you know, cognitively, maybe you're not putting pencil to paper, but but make sure you kind of stay in that headspace so you can be effective uh, for the people who, who work for, you know with you. Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of a lot of folks like that are in management positions, they kind of like miss that like getting their like rolling up their sleeves and doing the stuff, you know? And it's there's nothing to stop them from saying like, "Hey, you know, maybe they, you know, need to like cut out some time of their business day to focus on doing some of that stuff." you know, small project or whatever it is, you know, something that just needs to get done. Or, you know, if they have the luxury in their own spare time, you know, carve out some projects, you know, like I've done so many side projects. I can't even count. I mean, digital web was a side project, right? Mm-hmm. Like I know not everybody has that luxury. Don't get me started about people's personal time and the work-life balancing. But that said, like, you know, there does need to be a reconnection with the craft, so to speak, every once in a while, right? If you've been at it for a number of years, you've got to have some sort of connection with that. 
whether it's involved in the industry and having those discussions and just kind of learning about what's going on, doing work yourself, you know, or whatever it is. Otherwise, you know, yeah, you stagnate. Distance yourself so far that once you finally do reach chief experience officer or whatever it is after your 20th promotion or something, you know, like you're going to be so disconnected from how things are actually done. Look at the last few years and just tooling, right? Like just mind-blowing change, right? Yeah. Like everything used to be Creative Suite before, right? And, yep. you know, whatever, you know, Visio and Omnigraph. And now it's like all of a sudden we're in a whole different world. If you're not keeping tabs on that, yeah, you're, you're going to be finding yourself stagnant. Awesome. Look, Nick, we've been talking for a while and I'm certain that even just a couple of the things we touched on, we can keep going even for a whole nother hour, but I need to be respectful of your time. And so one of the things I typically ask people as, we, as we're as we sort of wrapping up is that, you know, if I forgot everything we talked about and somebody were to say, hey, well, you know, what did you and Nick talk about? How would you summarize that? How would you answer that question for them? Uh, we talked about a lot of stuff, didn't we? I think the big thing here is we need to do better at investing in the people inside of organizations. We need to do better about fostering their growth. We need to be better about removing the gates into our field. We need to be better world citizens. That's a huge thing this last year, right? We also need to speak up for ourselves and protect ourselves, give ourselves self-care. I feel like we're just in this like production massive machine that we fail to step outside of it and take a break once in a while. And I see some of my friends doing that. But yeah, there's all sorts of things that we, I think we need to be doing a better job at. I don't think it takes much, as much as one might think to invest in that stuff. We need to be better at like helping people achieve their goals. Nice. I like that summary. Is there anything that you want to share with folks that maybe we didn't get to or talk about today? I'm working on a site launch. And probably by the time this podcast is up, hopefully, knock on wood here, it will be launched I am offering mentoring as a service, full disclosure there. But I also do sometimes free mentoring, depending on the candidate for a lot of factors. Basically don't have the opportunity that other folks would otherwise have, especially like the opportunities that I've had, which I've been very thankful for. So I do a lot of that. And, you know, craft and rigor has been something that I've been kind of kicking around for a while and it's kind of finally start to materialize. Um, so look for some sort of announcements related to that, which is craft and rigor for those who don't know, is just basically my, my business that I run right now. It does support my mentoring, but um, I also do essentially design mentoring and advising for organizations that are like, what should my design team look like? How should it be structured? When should I hire a junior designer? Are leveling guides important? What do they look like? How, who can help me with that? You know, all that kind of stuff is stuff that I help with, as well as, of course, growth opportunities for designers, basically just coaching and mentoring designers internally as a vendor. Those are things that I've kind of spent the last probably three months prototyping. And so that's going to launch all pretty soon on Crafter Rigor and my, my own personal site, which is if you go to it today, it would, it would like lead you to like a password protected thing, but it will be launched probably, I'm hoping soon by the time this launches. So you said maybe February, I don't know, but uh, we'll see. But look for that. And then the other things I would also say is there are a couple of good posts and I'll send you the links so you don't have to dig for them, but there are a couple of good posts out there about kind of the state of design, the state of our industry, where things are at. I thought this might be helpful for people kind of as we enter the end of the year, the start of the next year. I know people are going to be hearing this like kind of after the fact, but these are what I always have felt like the end of year summaries should really be like. They just kind of provide a little bit more perspective on some of the things that really matter in our field versus some of the things that really just we're all tired of talking about. They don't really matter in the grand scheme of things. Yep. Right? 
Nice. Okay. Well, well, I'll look forward to that too. And uh, we get those links and uh, into your new site too. And knock on wood that it's that it's also live when we get this episode out. We'll have links to all that stuff in the show notes. So for those of you listening, uh, just go ahead and head over to our site where the where this episode is posted, and you'll be able to check those things out. Otherwise, you know, I just want to say thank you again, Nick, for taking the time, jumping on here, having a great conversation with me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks. And for all those that have been listening, thanks for listening to my babble for so many years. If you're following me on Twitter and other things, I also appreciate you tuning into this podcast. And I know some folks had posted on Twitter or some questions. I will get back to you guys on Twitter for the sake of time. But yeah, thanks for having me. This has been great. I've liked our conversation. and It was a good, fun exploration into all the things that I've been doing lately, basically. Cool. Well, we enjoyed having you and that's going to be it for this episode. We will see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by Aurelius, the research and insights tool that helps you analyze, search, and share all your research in one place. So you can go from data to insights to action faster and easier. Check out Aurelius for yourself with a 30-day trial by going to AureliusLab.com. That's A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot if you would give us a review on iTunes to let others know what you think. You can catch all new episodes of the Aurelius podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts like iTunes, Spotify, and more. Stay up to date when new episodes come out by signing up for email updates on our website.